Dance Dance with Primo Cubano. Join WERU Community Radio and The Grand for a fundraising concert and dance party to benefit both organizations with Maine's own salsa band, Primo Cubano. And that's Friday night, November 19th at 7.30 at The Grand in Ellsworth. We hope that you'll be there. Tickets are $12 for the general public or $10 for members of The Grand or WERU. And they're available at the Grand Box Office, 667-9500, or grandonline.org. That's Salsa with Primo Cubano, a benefit concert for WERU and the Grand on Friday, November 19th. Baile con nosotros, dance with us, or just come enjoy the great music. Que ritmo! Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in Holden. Fields Pond has a year-round nature store, lake access, and offers educational programs about habitat conservation for people of all ages. More information at maineaudubon.org or 989-2591. Support for Talk of the Towns also comes from Table, a farmhouse bistro, serving dinner Tuesday through Saturday starting at 5 p.m. Located at 66 Main Street in Blue Hill. More information at farmkitchentable.com. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and, like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Connecting science to community improves our understanding of environmental concerns and the quality of policy decisions we make as individuals and as a society. This is Ron Beard, your host. Um, I work with both University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant, and we're glad to welcome some guests who can help us with that question of connecting science to the community. I'm glad to welcome um, Michael Sokup, who is the director of the Cirque Institute. Is that right, Michael? That's correct. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you got um, in, into this work. Well, I, I had a 31-year uh, career with the National Park Service and uh, enjoyed it very much. In the last 12 years, uh, we're in Washington, D.C. as the Associate Director for Natural Resource Stewardship and Science. And while I was in Washington, uh, I got to help build a number of programs. Mm. And one of those programs was the Research Learning Center Network, 
um, a network of research learning centers, uh, facilities within national parks where scientists and uh, uh, visitors and local communities and, and uh, adult education folks could get together and see science uh, as it's being done um, by the people who do it and who have a passion for it. Uh, and those sites um, are all around the country. There are 20 of them now. And I was um, there when it was created. So when I got the chance after retirement from the Park Service to be a part of, of, of uh, helping uh, the Skudik Education and Research Center develop, uh, uh, I, I jumped at it and I moved up from Virginia about a month ago and here I am. Great. We'll come back to you and, and learn a little bit more about um, that that whole network and how it uh, plays out at the Scudic Education and Research Center. <clears throat> um, also joining us is Sarah Nelson, and Sarah is with the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research, and that's a mouthful. Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got in involved in, in this kind of research. Sure. Um, I had a bit of a different pathway to science in general. Um, after getting my undergraduate degree in humanities, I volunteered doing water quality work on a mm. local river, mm. and I became hooked. So I went back to graduate school here in Maine, um, partly inspired by some recent trips I had taken to Acadia and just reintroducing me to the region. Um, and I began studying um, the pattern or signature of different chemicals across the landscape in rain and snow at Acadia. Uh, I ended up for, a, for my PhD work looking at mercury and snow and rain, um, down at Acadia and how snow and rain interact with trees, uh, change the chemistry of that snow and rain before it hits the ground and then tracing the mercury into the stream. Mm. So sort of starting high up in a watershed, what's coming in and thinking about how it gets into the water. And the work that we're all doing now um, follows it even farther down its pathway. Mm. Well, I've got a theme already going with you and, and Michael talking about um, a national park as a place to do research. It seems like a natural because it's kind of untouched by some of the other effects that are happening in the, the other parts of the landscape. And so it's a great place to study these things, right? Absolutely. Great. And um, we also have Ed Lindsay. Ed is a science teacher at Old Town High School. Um, how did you get to be a science teacher, Ed? Well, I was a, a latecomer to science teaching. I did a lot of other things, but um, what brought me to science teaching was uh, the experience I had as a younger person that through science education, um, one's eyes can be open to fabulous things that you can't see mm. without that without mm. that point of view. And um, to see to see things uh, around you with an awe that you may not have had available to your to your experience through science was so powerful for me. That's sort of my purpose for working with young people. In what the, was in that the realm one thing science. that kind of that that twisted your kind of fate and said, "Oh, science is the way to do that." Do you remember that particular incident that you that science kind of opened your eyes in a new way? Yeah, and it happened in high school, uh -huh. as, as I hope it happens uh, frequently. And it was with a, a particular teacher. Uh, it happened to be a biology teacher. But in that experience of biology, I learned about um, uh, I learned about time and how things happen on on uh, various time scales and how incredible things can happen on long time scales. Mm -hmm. 
and how uh, what happens in your body is part of a, a really much bigger uh, story about what happens in, in much larger systems and how the planet itself is part of a much larger system and how um, everything is, is connected. Mm. And um, mm. it's, a, it's a really powerful perspective to have. Mm. That's a great story. And I think many of us were inspired at high school age or perhaps younger um, with, with the experience of parents getting us out into the, into the real world <coughs> and um, help, helping us see the world through a different lens. So that's the lens of science that you're talking about. You also brought um, two students. Would you like to introduce them and we'll have them say a word about how, how you, you selected these folks to come and, and join us? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I brought two students today from the, the class I teach at Old Town High School. And it's a, a chemistry class, but uh, with a twist. And um, we call it environmental chemistry research. And we'll talk more about it, I, I imagine. Mm -hmm. But um, volunteering to come uh, today were uh, Rachel Calloway and James Townsend. And I asked them to, to come because um, they've been quite involved in the work that we've that we've done in class and um, are enthusiastic about about what we're doing and also I think have uh, different voices and different perspectives on what we're doing in the class. Great. Well I'll start with um, Rachel. Um, uh, Ed has described this notion of a science as a lens you know in w with which to see the world. Did, do you have some sense of when you first realized that science was a lens that you could use? Do you, do you have a sense that um, um, some experiment or some experience out of doors um, allowed you to see the world in, in, a, in a different kind of way? No, she said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get interested in taking this class? Um, it was completely by chance, actually. Okay. Um, I'm extremely happy that it happened by chance. Uh -huh. It's a really, really fun class, and I'm really interested to be working with Sarah and everyone at the university um, and be a part of this big research development. Uh -huh. yeah. And is there anything in particular that said, oh, this is, this is really interesting to me or makes it fun for you? Um, we do a lot of field trips, which mm -hmm. <laughs> I think is really right. cool. Right. And we actually are like really hands-on with the activities that we right. do in class, which is way better than just looking at a teacher and writing down notes <laughs> every day. Right. Well, yeah. I think um, most people tend to agree that good education actually takes place out of doors. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we all are in agreement with that. Um, James Townsend, um, how did you start first become interested in this particular course? Speak right into the mic there. Well, I started when uh, I came into Mr. Lindsay's class and uh, just moved from Illinois and really didn't have any perspective of going into chemistry. Uh -huh. So, well, I liked it because it was outdoors and a lot of hands-on, and I really don't like a lot of classwork because taking notes just ain't my thing, you know? So... We started hands-on stuff and started doing dragonflies and started stuff with mercury, which was kind of fun, although it had its ups and downs. <laughs> like going into watersheds and getting samples for mercury out of the watersheds and sun caves and Buzzy Brook and stuff like that, which, you know, it was kind of fun at times because... It's work, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's messy, a little messy sometimes. 
Uh, I think it was more wet than messy. Wet. Okay, <laughs> wet. <laughs> well, if we're going to get out in the world, we have to get wet sometimes. Well, let's circle back, and I'll come back to each of you um, in, as we kind of tell this larger story. Come back to Michael Sukup, who's the director of the Cirque Institute um, down in, in uh, Skudik, um, part of Acadia National Park. And um, as you saw these science and research centers begin to kind of come into form when you were working with the Park Service, what what made you realize that this was really this is it. This is this was really going to click. This notion of bringing science to to the the park services in a way that the public could really see it happening. Well, you alluded to the to the um, the, the use of national parks as laboratories. Mm. They make wonderful laboratories, and and that's very fortunate for the park service because it needs to have people in the parks doing research so that it starts to understand how. All these complex systems work. These watersheds and the, these atmospheric processes are very important when you start to make decisions for the long-term protection and preservation of these systems. So that's the real mission of the Park Service, it is that protection. very much is. Right. And, and the Park Service has been a wonderfully successful agency in, in providing facilities and visitor services. Um, it needs now, uh, with the future landscape, to step up and, and really understand these processes and what it takes to, to protect parks in the future. So when we thought about this concept, I used to be a researcher in the field, and the hardest part was to find lodging and, and lab space out in the field mm -hmm. in some sort of support structure. So throughout my career, I, I kept that in the back of my mind, and when I got to Washington, uh, there was an issue about the Park Service having too much um, in the way of facilities and housing that wasn't being used but had to be maintained. So we put the two ideas together mm. uh, as, as, as a way to retrofit historic buildings and to adaptively reuse them uh, for researcher support. So it was a good way to get more intellectual buzz going in uh, a park and having that that, uh, that information generated for use in, in making everyday decisions, but also uh, to include and combine into the outreach and education programs. So we knew it was a success when we we had this idea in Washington and actually the field wanted it. Uh, most things that come out of Washington, uh, many people think are not really very welcome. This was an idea that was received very enthusiastically and we were able to set up 12 of them before, for political reasons, uh, the program was, was put on indefinite hold. In a number of parks, we now have 20 in a number of parks, eight of them have built them on their own without any funding from Washington. So we, we know that parks are realizing that they, they have to be engaged in bigger processes and bigger levels of understanding and more science. So we, we think we're on the right track. Mm. And tell us a little bit about um, the opportunity that you've kind of come into at, at Skudik. Um, there's an ideal situation where there were, the Park Service got um, buildings and facilities from the Navy, which left about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and these were un underutilized facilities, and now the Cirque Institute has kind of come in to, to support this work? In a sense, it's a, a swords to plowshares kind mm. of um, mm. event, which is, you know, pretty exciting. Um, the, the size and the reach of those resources, uh, we can house up to 200 people a 
night. We have conference facilities and an auditorium that uh, handles 150 people. And these are pretty pretty nice and, and, and fairly elaborate facilities that the, the Navy left us. And the ones that they left us that we couldn't use, we've now removed and reconfigured the campus in a way that's going to be a real local, national, uh, regional resource. And mm. it's, it's got so much potential, it's pretty exciting. Mm. And you're kind of at the beginning of that process. And I know it, it started because the community said, what are we going to do? Um, <laughs> what's the Park Service going to do to help us with our economy? Park Service said, well, let's investigate this idea of a, a research educational research center. You're at the kind of beginning. You've begun to make the facilities changes. You're beginning to do the programming. Um, tell us more about the program side. Well, first of all, the the uh, the decision by the park is a very bold one because mm -hmm. of the scope and magnitude. It's it's not something that you see in any other national park. So the bold the boldness here is 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 part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. And now we've done it, and we've mm -hmm. got to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, what we hope to do uh, is is continue what's already started, and those are some very very important outreach um, programs for local education, uh, for teacher training, um, for advanced placement teacher training, <coughs> excuse me, um, and a number of things that, that really help science teachers um, teach better science and, and uh, we mentioned this just a minute ago, get kids and classes out into the actual environment where things are happening. Uh, we hope that those experiences for kids will stick with them and uh, lead to an appreciation for conservation and, and better um, resource decisions in the future. Mm, great. I just want to remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU Community Radio, supported by your contributions. And we'll have a, um, a fun drive that starts tomorrow. We'll look for your contributions at that time. In the studio with us, we have Michael Sukup, who is the director of the CIRC Institute, Scutic Education Research Center Institute down in, in uh, Winter Harbor. And we have Sarah Nelson, who is with the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research from the University of Maine. Ed Lindsay, a science teacher from Old Town High School. And James Townsend and Rachel Calloway, who are students of uh, Ed's in the um, his science, science in the environment. Is that what you know? Oh, chemistry in the environment. Environmental class. chemistry research. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Well, uh, Sarah, how do you fit into this picture as a, as a researcher? You said that you, you were interested in Acadia. That was one of your first impressions w coming to Maine. How did you make that journey, and, and what's, the, what's the relationship between you and the Cirque Institute now? Sure. I spend about um, half my time working on the education end of things and the other half doing scientific research. Mm -hmm. And even the education piece is really strongly focused on science. Obviously, we're doing a research project here with schools across Maine and now in, in New Hampshire and Vermont as well. Um, I actually taught a winter ecology field course uh, at CERC a couple of years in a row, I think 2007, 2008, where we brought students in from high school, um, MSSM, um, up in northern Maine for about a week and a half. And those students, um, we ran them through a research project in about a week and a half from the whole process of learning about the system, coming up with some research questions, collecting samples, using their data, and finally presenting what they had found. Uh, and it really was a nice format where we felt like the students really got something out of it. Um, we subsequently followed up with some initial research to um, learn more about what type of science teaching was going on in schools and try out some of these inquiry-based methods with schools all across Maine. Um, 
during that first part, we found out that a lot of times students did not think that science has anything to do with creativity, hmm. which is kind of interesting. Um, and science, to a lot of people, seems to be sort of like the encyclopedia. You look things up, and, and everything is sort of written down, and we just need to look it up and, and learn more of that information. Instead of that notion of a research question that you mentioned you worked with these students with, how do you form a research question which taps into our creativity? Exactly. Mm. Um, science, to me, is a lot more about figuring out how things work. Mm. And so that's what the students and their teachers have been doing with this project. They're sort of on the <coughs> frontier of science. Um, mercury research is pretty new. We, mercury is an element, so we've known about it for a long time, but learning how it moves in the environment is a pretty new field. Uh, and what they're doing with these invertebrates is fairly cutting edge. There aren't a lot of researchers anywhere doing this. So it's neat to have citizen scientists breaking new ground and learning more about how we can link biology and chemistry in the environment. So when you were um, doing um, watershed monitoring, um, was mercury an issue, issue for you, or did you discover mercury as a possible area of research later on? Um, I began looking mostly at acid rain type components, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but very quickly moved into mercury. And it's a really interesting element, as maybe Ed will discuss. Um, it interacts with a lot of different chemicals and with the environment in ways that you can sort of use it to teach any concept. There are biological uh, interactions with species like the dragonfly larvae that they're currently studying, as well as um, interactions with the chemical environment. Um, and it allows us to think about whole watersheds as a good uh, unifying concept. So what's inside a watershed has something to do, we think, with how much mercury ends up in a stream and maybe also these critters. Mm. How does mercury get there in the first place? I assume it goes up in the air somewhere and then it comes down. Tell us about uh, that cycle first. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, mercury is a chemical element. It comes from a lot of natural sources, mm -hmm. but what's been happening since uh, about the early 1900s is industrialization, which has really kind of sped up the release of mercury to the atmosphere. So one big source in the U.S. is burning fossil fuels, and actually globally. So mercury is released through things like smokestacks and other sources, ends up in the atmosphere, and it can actually circle the globe. It stays in the atmosphere a long time. And it eventually falls down with rain, snow, or as dry uh, particles sort of accumulated um, as dust on foliage and other surfaces. Um, so coming in, you know, goes up, must come down, <laughs> eventually ends up um, falling in places often remote from where it was produced. Um, so Maine and Acadia get a good amount of mercury uh, in their ecosystems, and we're trying to figure out why some places might have more than others. Mm -hmm. And are there... Uh, kind of immediately observable effects of mercury that we might see if we're walking in places in Acadia or other parts of Maine because we're at the tail end of the smokestacks? That's a great question. It's actually a really subtle uh, pollutant, mm. if you want to call it that. It is also a natural element. Um, and mercury is found in the environment in really ultra trace levels, very, mm. very small, which is why a lot of the data are new because we just now have lab techniques that work mm -hmm. well for it. Um, and it's a neurotoxin, it affects the brain. So a lot of what we hear about mercury in, in the general public has to do with fish consumption advisories. It works its way into the food chain and ends up in fish that people and other animals eat. Mm. Um, so that's how most people probably think of it, and that's what we're worried about. It's nothing you can see, um, and it's simply, um, you know, often for, for people, we're concerned about mercury because 
they're eating fish that could be high in mercury. And that really traces the, the story of, of environmental pollution in general. We started to deal with the things we could smell and things we could see and see the effects of, and now we're getting to understand that there are some things that we can't see, but we still need to be concerned about them. Absolutely. Mm. Let's, let's move to Ed and, 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 and get a little bit more background on how you became connected with Sarah and with her research. Well, I was, I was lucky enough to go to a workshop at, uh, at, at CERC, the School Education and Research Center. Um, I was at a conference and had a choice of three or four things I could go to, and I just picked this one. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a real fortunate choice because they were talking, uh, uh, their, their proposals for work with high schoolers were to um, get students doing authentic research. And, and um, given a, a local context system landscape to devise um, a research question based on how that 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 area uh, might function, and to um, use mercury as as the focusing, as as the focuser of of the research questions, and that it turns out to be a really powerful focuser because um, it it allows you to uh, track the 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 functioning of the system and the interconnections and how what happens in one part of a watershed affects what happens in another part of the watershed. And mercury is really an interdisciplinary um, element because it's a chemical, obviously, and you can teach a lot of the, uh, of the chemistry that, that happens um, with, with all elements through, through mercury. But it also, uh, if you're going to ask these research questions about what's happening in a watershed uh, with mercury and use as your test uh, organism, a dragonfly larva, you really have to learn a lot and you have to integrate a lot of information in order to get your, your, your head around a research question that can actually be tested. Mm. And uh, in that whole process of forming a research question and uh, a question that can be answered with data imposes uh, constraints on, uh, first of all, it blows the door open for creativity and then it imposes the constraint of, of <laughs> science uh, on that creativity and it's really powerful. And, uh, I've, I've, and because every every research question is is unique, it's open ended, um, which I really like, and I, and I hope that the students enjoy too. And that's this feeling that we're doing something new every year and authentic, and the ground hasn't been uh, been walked on uh, before. Mm. Um, both you and Sarah have mentioned the use of dragonflies. We're going to come to students in a minute, but why dragonflies, and and how did you know that that might be a good place to start um, looking at this, these interactions in the in the watershed? Who came up with the with the research question, or was that a collaborative process? Sarah, I, I think it was um, collaborative, and it actually does involve Ed. We had s the first year of this project, we had sampled a lot of different things, including all sorts of macroinvertebrates that live in the water. So these are a lot of insects and crustaceans like crayfish, uh, mayflies, things like that living in the water. We found dragonfly larvae or nymphs in a lot of streams and ponds and wetlands around. Um, and actually, Ed students went to Hancock County Tech Center to meet with students who had done work there. Um, and when we looked at their data altogether, we started noticing that the dragonfly larvae from Ellsworth seemed to have higher mercury uh, as a group than those from the sites in Old Town. And in Old Town, they have a number of streams they're studying, and those sort of separated out by site. So we began thinking they could be a really good indicator, if you will, for mercury and just tell us something about the general status in the watershed. And that got us on this track. 
Mm -hmm. And Ed, want to again provide a little introduction to, to the students, and then we'll get their experience. Um, how did you begin to say, well, let's get out in the field, um, let's go out and maybe take the advantage of, of, of your CERC experience, the Scutic Education Research Center experience, and then translate that into your classroom? Yeah, well, I've, I've always looked for an excuse to get out in the field with mm -hmm. students, and, and I found one in mm -hmm. working with the, with the CERC Institute. And so I, it was. It was lucky, and I feel very fortunate because they uh, are, they have the organizing structure uh, to, to have to have it make sense. And so our field trips are always uh, highly purposeful. And um, and as far as the the, the dragonflies uh, go, that not only uh, um, are we we're kind of doing research on whether and to what extent they can be they can serve as a bioindicator that. That the mercury that's in their bodies can tell stories about what's happening in the watershed, about how the watershed system is functioning, and that's that's fascinating. And um, dragonflies are also uh, charismatic insects. I like to call them. They're they're easy to catch and they're fun to hold. And after a little while, you can start to tell the difference between the families, and um, you can bring them back to the lab, and they're they're big enough to see, and they're they're fearsome. And they, they teach the, the lesson that, uh, that, that insects have these complex life cycles and uh, dragonflies we see flying around in the air. But most people don't know, and even I didn't know until I uh, started to pay more attention that they spend most of their times in the streams. And so if a dragonfly lives in the stream for three years eating what's in that stream, then it's really plausible that that dragonfly could uh, accumulate, by, by accumulating mercury in his or her body could could t uh, reveal the watershed secrets to you. Uh, Sarah, you've got a picture of these dragonflies. Why don't you try to describe them to our listeners? Because it's not television. <laughs> <laughs> That's a challenge. Sure. Um. And, and these these people, uh, James and Rachel, have worked pretty intimately. So they maybe could they can help. Yeah. Okay. Dragonflies so you, face to face. Sarah, you start, and then and James and Sarah will um, and James and Rachel will add to your description. Sure. So, well, they have six legs. Um, being insects, and their head actually looks quite a lot like a dragonfly you might see flying around. Um, but they're brown in color, and the back part of their abdomen is more like, um, um, you know, sort of a fleshy, meaty, um, bulbous thing, not the very long, skinny tail that a flying dragonfly would have. But it looks kind of armored. They do. Rachel, how would you add to, to Sarah's description of a dragonfly larvae? Well, that's and, a hard question. Well, um, but you've, you've held them in your hand. You know, right. what, what's your experience when you... They're a lot bigger than you would think they were. Mm -hmm. they're, they look nothing like a dragonfly that you would see um, flying around. Um, they're sort of ugly. Mm -hmm. um, the coolest thing about them is that they have this really, really long jaw-like thing on the bottom of them that you can actually, like, pull out, and it's extremely long. Like, they, I don't know, used to reach out and grab their prey. Uh -huh. um, so that's really interesting. But, uh, and James, what would you add to a description of a, of a dragonfly um, larvae from your experience? Not necessarily from the picture, but what, what's it like to work with these critters? Well, it's... Uh, not much of a challenge, but I <clears throat> might got a couple class experience with them. They're uh, they're pretty interesting creatures. What I've learned about them is, uh, well, I don't know. I can't really explain it all, but 
Well, their armored and dragonflies are known as fierce predators, as Mr. Lindsay would say. And, um, well. So are they predators when they're in the water as well as when they're flying around? How do you know that they're predators in the water? Well, before we learn that, that they just eat different varieties of insects while they're in the water. And they spend, like, well, I ain't got a real good estimate of time, but I'd say maybe a month, maybe more in the water as... They come to adulthood of a dragonfly, and then, you know. So when you're out there, um, you're walking in a stream, or next next to a stream, probably you have to walk in it a little bit too. How do you find a, a dragonfly nymph? Well, I didn't come on the first field trip, and I didn't find any dragonflies, so... I was on the field trip where we were measuring mercury. So. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm getting a, a, an indication that Rachel might know h- how you find a dragonfly nymph in a stream. Well, first things first, we have to dress up in our lovely waders that <laughs> <laughs> probably come up to your chest. And, uh-huh. um, we basically just wade into the stream with our big nets and find the most mucky areas and scoop up some dirt and all little organisms that are crawling around and you don't know it's really by chance that you'd find a dragonfly larvae so you're basically scooping up mud and water and then you're sifting that out letting the water fall out and then you've got something in the net and you kind of poke through that net and hopefully you find a a nymph exactly hey i could be a scientist (laughs) you could (laughs) and the amazing thing is that out of all the critters wiggling around in that net it doesn't take uh, very long to get your eyes on so to speak and say oh there's one there's one there's one of one family there's one of another family Mm -hmm. it's that eye opening that i think is fascinating Uh Mm -hmm. and ed you described them as fearsome how how did you come to understand them as fearsome critters um well, I, I learned about them as fearsome critters, um, and so I, I knew that just intellectually going in. But we've had um, dragonfly larvae in, in buckets in the, in, in the classroom to mm-hmm. learn what they look like, and uh, their fierceness doesn't stop even though they're in a, a peanut butter jar, and they'll attack each other. One dragonfly uh, will, will eat another. Um, and well, they'll shed in the peanut butter buckets, and uh, when they do that, they're soft, and um, the other dragonflies don't hesitate to eat the one that has been exposed. It's lost its armored mm-hmm. armored nest, and I don't know uh, when the when the students were um, very carefully um, preparing the samples uh, uh, for lab analysis. Um, a few dragonflies did something kind of amazing, or so we thought, with a rubber glove. You want to tell about that, Rachel? Rachel? <laughs> um, one of the students in the class actually was using, like, this rubber glove to pick them up and sort of just um, s- sort of more closely look at them and try to figure out which family they were from. But um, one of them, or actually, how many were there? There were three? Three? Um... Uh, they actually attached to her glove, and she tried to like take them off, and they were very solidly stuck onto the glove. It was cool. They were just hanging from their little mouths. 
Great. Well, I'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU Community Radio. I'm your host, Ron Beard of University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. And we're hearing um, currently from some students from Old Town High School, uh, James Townsend and Rachel Calloway, both students at Old Town High School, um, students of Ed Lindsay. Ed is a science teacher there. He's been working with Sarah Nelson, who is with the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research. I'm going to get credit for every time I yeah. say that, that long thing. And um, Sarah is a researcher um, that uh, divides her time in terms of her research and her outreach, education type outreach, um, and is connected with the Skudik Education and Research Center. And Michael Sukup is the director of the Cirque Institute. Michael, maybe this is a good time to distinguish between Cirque and the Cirque Institute, your role and the, and the Park Service's role. Yes, um, the Skudik Education Research Center is is the facility that that makes a lot of these kinds of, of opportunities available, um, and to to operate that center, uh, of course, it's supported. It's it's part of and supported by Acadia National Park, and and it's a it's a gorgeous site out on the Scudic Peninsula. And in order to make it operate and to develop programs, the Cirque Institute was created. Uh, it was originally called Acadia Partners, and we've changed the name to, to indicate the close connection between the, the operation and program development at, at CERC uh, and CERC itself. Uh, and, and you can visualize it basically as a 501c3 nonprofit that depends on donations and on grants and, uh, and support from things like the, um, the recovery uh, stimulus mm-hmm. money came to uh, came in to help us reconfigure the campus, and the campus will be finished in August of 2011, and it'll be quite something to see. Um, but it'll be run um, operationally by the Cirque Institute, and there will be programs that complement the parks programs. Uh, both the interpretive programs and the resource management programs will be complemented by things that that uh, the Cirque Institute can can uh, get going. Uh, to further and and sort of you know maybe develop new areas faster perhaps than than a, a government process might. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got some little uh, flexibility there. To, to there's some with. flexibility. There's some right. downsides, of course, but there's really a lot of things that that uh, a, a nonprofit in combination with uh, the National Park Service and the Acadia National Park, uh, the combination of the two really is, is is much stronger than either on its own. Mm, thanks. I'll remind listeners that they can participate in this morning's radio broadcast about community science, the Scudic Education and Research Center, links to researchers, schools, and teachers. Maybe you've got some experience yourself, or you've got some questions for our guests in the studio. Please give us a call at one 866 625-9378. That's one 625 We were talking about um, dragonflies, and, and so what are we learning? Um, what, you know, Sarah, can you get us started in terms of uh, what, what the question was that you were trying to answer um, in, in this research, and then we can find out what, what, what's being learned? Sure. There are a couple different um, levels where we can answer that question. Um, one is I would say the citizen science piece where 
teachers and students who are participating in the project are really contributing to a database for, at this point, the whole Northeast mm. that's helping me and others to understand patterns of mercury across the landscape. Um, so I mentioned fish advisories before, state and federal guidelines that tell people they should maybe be concerned uh, about eating a lot of certain types of fish. In Maine, we have a statewide advisory, which means because we really can't predict which ponds or lakes might have more mercury than mm. others, um, the state is uh, more protective of, of people's health and just says that we should take a look at how many fish we're eating from those ponds if you, if you catch fish of certain species. So the question that I've been working on for quite a long time is about spatial patterns and how we might be able to predict how much mercury is in one place or another based on some characteristic of a watershed. Um, so the data that these students are providing goes into this big database, um, and we're trying to tease out some of those patterns and see what are the characteristics of the watershed that seem to have dragonflies with higher mercury, and what are the characteristics of those that seem to have lower mercury, so that we can maybe start to target um, some types of areas or watersheds that could have fish that might be uh, less of concern. Um, so that's the broader citizen science piece. Um, and then I don't know if you want to talk about specific research questions that your students have been digging into, which inform mm -hmm. the broader Great. goal. Great. Ed? Yeah, so uh, part of the, of the course, as it's structured at Old Town High School, is that um, uh, about, uh, about the middle of the school year, uh, it's our hope that we've learned enough about what watersheds are and, and how water moves and how how mercury cycles and what the influences on it are and and how mercury uh, uh, moves up food chains and where dragonflies are in the in the food web of watershed to to have students in small teams craft a, an original research question uh, and that research question could could be into the trophic system the the feeding s status of dragonflies and and the things they eat um, and that and that question could be tested with uh, the mercury that's in the dragonfly's body, or it could be a landscape type of question with, where the kids uh, have become f familiar enough with the landscape to identify uh, possible influences on mercury in different parts of the Sun Caves watershed, which is our study system, and to test those uh, claims about how the watershed is working again with the with the mercury that shows up in the in the dragonfly's body. So it's happening on two levels: the the student students and teams are, are crafting original. Uh, small-scale research questions, and then from all the contributing schools, Sarah takes the the great big mm. data sets uh, that come in and, and makes sense of them on a on a bigger scale. Mm. So, um, is students here ready to talk about the research question they're most involved in? We're not there yet. You're not that, there yet. So this is uh, we're getting that, to that place in, in your in yeah. your term. We're putting the pieces together. Okay. They'll be crafting your research questions in the spring. Okay. Yeah. So you've you've mentioned that um, you're looking to trace mercury. We've we've learned that it comes a lot out of of uh, um, fossil fuels, and that it ends up in our environment in water. Um, little critters. Um, take it in through when they're eating th something or drinking the water, and um, dragonfly larvae eat these little critters. Is that a safe assumption? And then fish eat the dragonfly larvae. Mm -hmm. So then we eat the fish, and then it's a, it might be a health problem for us. Exactly. So that's, the, that's the, the trail that you're looking at. And, and I think your question is, is fascinating, Sarah, that, that we're trying to figure out are there some areas which 
that are, have a greater chance of having that cycle work so that fish end up with more mercury than other places. So we could be a little more selective in our warnings. Is that the case? So if I go up to the Allagash, for instance, as I do in the spring, um, and I'm catching fish in Eagle Lake, um, I might know more because of some of your models in, in the future, whether I should be concerned about that or um, fishing in a trout stream in Hancock County. Sure. Yes, exactly. Okay. There are researchers in um, a lot of places working on that question and taking different approaches. Um, so this one is to try to use this critter as a bioindicator. Mm -hmm. uh, mercury analysis is pretty expensive if mm. you're sampling water. It's, mm -hmm. it's about $100 a sample. Hmm. Whereas we have a new instrument at the Sawyer Lab at the University of Maine that can analyze these for about a fifth or less of that cost. And mm. so these could be a good way mm -hmm. um, to get out and get a lot of samples. Mm -hmm. So um, as you, as you as, as students have gotten out there and you've begun to figure out where in the watershed um, uh, dragonfly larvae exist, have you begun to think about some of these larger questions that, that um, might end up in, in research? Have you begun to say, I've observed this and, and I wonder about that? That's the basic question of a science. They observe something and then they start asking questions that nobody knows the answers to. Have you, have you had any of those kinds of thoughts yet? James, what do you what, what do you see when you're out there? What do you, what kinds of things do you see in the streams or in in the uh, watershed itself? Well, I gave it a few thoughts, but uh -huh. I ain't really had no like real well, big questions come on, come about on. it. Just share what your thoughts are, because that's that's where science starts. Well, I'm not much of the chemistry or science. No, that's thing, all right. You know? That's it's all right. Not my subject. But, no, but I've uh, readily like just thought about it, but I ain't got no real big questions about uh -huh. what I've always wanted to you know, wonder about it, you know, because I don't know, I'm just not the, uh -huh. not uh -huh. the science person, so. <laughs> You'll get there. You'll get there. Rachel, have you, have you begun to think about what kinds of questions that you are curious about? You've observed some things. Do you have any questions that have kind of bubbled up? Not exactly. I'm really in the learning stage right now okay. and helping them with their questions, the, mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Lindsay and everyone from UMaine. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, Ed, have you taught this course before? And, and are there research questions that students have come up with in past courses that you could share to kind of give us a flavor of what those questions might look like? I've stumbled through the course twice before. Okay, good. Well, that's, that's life is stumbling through. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's my hope that the, the, the research, coming up with the question is the hardest part mm -hmm. of the course. Mm -hmm. um, it's exhausting, as, as a matter of fact. And, and kids uh, end up asking me, why are we doing this again, Mr. Lindsay? Didn't we, didn't we talk about questions last class in the mm -hmm. class before? And, mm -hmm. and one of the points, and I, I think that, uh, that Sarah would, would, would echo this, of the, of the whole experience is to teach people what science really is because people have misconceptions, mm -hmm. and Sarah addressed that, about what science is. Science is a list of facts that have been found that have been discovered and all we need to do is look them up, where it's really uh, uh, much more of a process. And what I, what I hope is that um, from experiences um, that Rachel had um, stepping over uh, certain stones in the, at the bottom of a, of a, of a waterfall, um, actually feeling the, the water press against her waders and actually topple her into the pool so that she's been the brunt of jokes since that happened on a particular field trip. Um, and and, and experiences uh, when we were out gathering these um, ultra-clean uh, uh, water samples in an ultra-clean bottle to, 
to get an idea of how much mercury is in the water to begin with, having James um, uh, have to extend, lie on the ground and extend his body <laughs> far enough. Hovering over the water. <laughs> hovering over the water. Why do we need to be so careful? And mm. uh, why, why is my teacher holding on to the straps of my waders to help me get farther away from the bank? Um, it, I, I hope that these experiences are, are what, um, even, even if you can't put it into words, are what starts to inform the mm. questions that they'll mm. ask. And it will start with interest. As you said, we'll say, what are you interested in? Mm-hmm. What, what, do you, what, is, what kernel of a question is there? And then we'll elaborate those and elaborate those. And eventually, I, I don't know what the questions will be, and that's the exciting and the dangerous part mm. of this course. Mm. But uh, we will get there. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what kinds of questions have you seen other um, teachers or, or students begin to in- investigate? How would you, again, I'm, what I'm trying to get to so that listeners understand, what makes a good science question? And maybe by asking one or, or illustrating them, we can kind of understand that a little bit. Sure. So we're really just learning about mercury and dragonfly larvae. Um, not many researchers have studied them before. So we have some really um, beginning types of questions that students in different schools have asked about whether the different families of dragonflies, which mm-hmm. is one way to group them, whether those have different amounts of mercury. So does it matter if it's a skimmer type dragonfly or an emerald type dragonfly. Um, We've had classes who've looked at whether the size of dragonflies matters. So the sort of uh, basis for that question is thinking about can a bigger thing eat bigger food that could have higher mercury or be higher on the food chain. Um, So they've looked at dragonfly length and compared that to what they find for mercury in their body. Um, A lot of students have looked at uh, things about the landscape, um, what type of setting is the site. We have a teacher in Scarborough who's currently, who has looked at a um, tidally influenced site versus an upland stream. Uh, This year she's looking at a wetland versus a stream system and thinking about what might be different about those. Mm, So the the notion that comes to me is does the mercury pass through one system faster than another? Does it hang around a little bit longer so that dragonfly get to to, um, nibble at it somehow? Yes, and in wetlands they have um, a great chemistry question where wetlands often kind of are brown colored water that looks like tea um, and what causes that brown color is something called dissolved organic carbon or DOC. Mercury tends to go along with DOC. It just sticks to it. It's a sticky Mm. molecule and they bind really well. So um, wetlands often will have higher levels of that uh, DOC chemical and and sometimes we look at wetlands as as places where we might suspect higher mercury, although Mm -hmm. not always. Mm -hmm. And we know that, um, I think we know that um, the older fish that we might eat and the larger fish we might eat probably have more mercury than the smaller fish. So you get to play this out, but dragonflies don't live very long. So we can't use that kind of older piece, but maybe the size piece is, is, is the case. Yep, the size piece having to do with the mouth part. And some dragonfly larvae actually do live three to five years. I've actually heard seven mm. in the water. Mm. And then once they emerge out of their... Um, nymph or larval form uh, and fly away, they can live a week to a month. Mm. So most of their life is in the water and it can be a long time, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting and surprising. We've had our first caller, but we didn't get it over the phone. We got um, a note passed to me, so I'll give you that note in just a minute. But I will remind listeners that we welcome your calls and your experience and your questions. But Give us a call at one 866 
625-9378. The question um, that we had passed to us was um, to our, our students, how do you measure mercury when you get it to school? Or maybe you, you don't at school, but you get it to the university. How do you, how do you figure out how much mercury is in a dragonfly? Larvae. Um, Rachel? Well, uh, at school, we don't actually measure the mercury because we don't have the machinery to do it. But um, a lot of what we do is just collect the uh, data from them, like how much they weigh and like what family they're from and pretty much just organizing. So it'll be really easy to pick out the ones that we want to send to the lab and they'll do the mercury research there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what happens when it gets to the lab? What do you actually do? What's the procedure to find out how much mercury is in a dragonfly larvae? Sure. So in a nutshell, the newer instrument that the University of Maine has um, that can analyze mercury in a lot of, uh, I, I usually think of it as solids, like dragonfly larvae, um, they go right into um, a small vessel that goes into the instrument, and they're incinerated at a very high temperature and essentially turned into a gas. Um, and it's really much less expensive than the older way um, that we did mercury analysis because we don't prepare the sample. It just goes right into the instrument and is <laughs> incinerated. Uh, and then the gas is collected on a detector and, and a light is shined through at a certain wavelength and counts how much mercury is in mm. that sample. Mm. It's really interesting. That's great. Yeah. Have you have students, or will they eventually see that instrument? Have they seen it yet? Uh, the lab manager has invited us to come along on a field trip. So yeah, we're going. Great, great. Well, I'm interested too is in, in terms of when you tell your friends that aren't in this class or your parents or others, what are they What are they curious about? They see you getting your waders on maybe <laughs> and taking these field trips. What are they curious about um, that they're maybe jealous about you getting this experience? Rachel, what do they ask you about? Well, it's a very, very different class and you can see that by, you know, when we get ready to go on a field trip with our waders and everything. Um, we look pretty goofy. Uh, but I think they're... Most of the time, they're just interested in why we would be doing what we're doing, um, and I don't, I don't really. <laughs> James, have you had any curious questions or things that that uh, struck you as funny about what they ask you, what, what others ask you? Well, um, I haven't really had anybody ask me about this because I don't know. It's just not really. You're keeping a, it a secret, huh? No, not really. <laughs> it, it's kind of open for anybody, you know, but. Nobody's really asking me about it, and, you know, I'm, I'm living with my father, so uh-huh. he, he really ain't interested. He's just trying to keep to his job and stuff and uh-huh. keep stuff straightened out. Sure. So, basically, he's been wanting me just to do good in school and make sure my grades are up. And, and you mentioned that the idea that getting outside, um, not having to, to uh, just learn it in books, it was really interesting to you. Yeah, because when I'm when I'm hands-on, I can learn like 100% more than I can just in class on mm-hmm. listening because, well, I just, I don't know, I'm just not the type to sit there because it's just not my thing, mm-hmm. you know? Well, we learn different ways. There are people who can learn, and I'm not one of them, by just reading things. <laughs> I'm more like you, I think, that I have to learn by doing it. I had a friend who could build a boat by looking at a picture. You know, that... That's something, that's skill that I don't have, but some people can. So we learn in different ways, and it's great for you to recognize that you learn best when you're, when you're hands-on. That's great. We do have our first call. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please, um, here on Talk of the Towns. Um, yeah, this is Beattie in Camden, and I've been just fascinated with this whole thing of the different kinds of people working together. Um, I feel really frustrated about um, both 
people feeling foreign from science and also and, and the findings of science and then also being scared of numbers and I worry about people being excluded from science by number illiteracy which you know with cog- different cognitive styles is, is pretty pretty widespread just being afraid of numbers and um, I keep thinking about um, what you're doing which is getting people outdoors and doing hands-on which is totally different and also by teaching science through arts and, and you know verbal kind of stories and plays and acting out political situations, which, you know, gets people into that. But I just had an idea I wanted to share. Um, what if you paired students, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't even get along. What if you paired students who are really good at numbers, not afraid of numbers, with, with kids who really wanted to find out and talk about and express, but didn't have that ability? Would that, would that, would that work? What a great question. And, and Bidi, thanks for all of your work over the years to do with this citizen monitoring and to get people engaged in your community. Let's see what our guests have to say. I, I just wanted to add on Mercury, I was so excited about that Ellsworth-Old Town difference because um, my family down east has Mercury problems. Mm. You don't really know how it's getting into them. Mm. Mm. So anyway... Great. Well, um, make sure you you uh, take note of, of uh, Sarah's name, Sarah Nelson, at the Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research, and maybe um, she might have some answers for you um, yeah. later on. Ed, do you have, want to say something? Oh, and then just a, just a real quick comment on on numbers. So uh, our uh, dragonflies up around uh, Old Town are showing some uh, a range of 17 to 94 parts per billion. There's some numbers coming at you, but uh, down at Hancock County Tech, the dragonflies have been measured with as high as, what, 170-some-odd PPB, Sarah? Yeah, around that range, which is... What's going on? Which is still low. It's a couple of times lower than what you might eat in, in some higher uh, trophic-level fish. Mm. Um so this isn't a, an acute toxic thing. It's it's from chronically eating a lot of fish that have high mercury is what people worry about. Um, we're exposed to a lot of things all the time. And here right. in Maine, it's not like exposure, uh, you know, in developing countries of people that work right with liquid mercury. Mm. Uh, it's a different kind of exposure. Mm. But your point about data literacy is really great. Um, for this project, we actually have new funding starting this year from the Maine Department of Education working with Circ Institute to get into that um, issue. Uh, we noticed early on that <coughs> it was a bit of a bottleneck when we hand back students all these numbers from the lab, sort of, what do we do with these? Uh, and we've realized in discussions with teachers that math happens in math class, and, <coughs> and students don't always realize that math also happens in science class. So here we're bringing it in with that hands-on piece. Can, can I just add a little piece? Yes, very briefly. When I, was, yeah. when I was in school, I teamed up. Um, I was never good at arithmetic, but I'm good at thinking math. I teamed up with a friend who was really good at arithmetic, and we're, we really knocked things back. I mean, I could tell her how to do stuff, and she could do it. Hmm. Great, great, anyway, great comment. Thanks so much for calling this morning here on Talk of the Towns. We've got just a few minutes left, and I'd like to ask each of you, perhaps starting with the students and then kind of working our way around, as to, you know, you've got another part of the course to go. What are some of your hopes? What are your hopes for the rest of the course? Rachel? Um, well, now to uh, make our research question and learn a little bit more about mercury. And uh-huh. Uh, the, how it affects the environment. Great, James. What are your what What do you hope for the rest of the course? 
Well, I'm hoping to find out this research question and uh, find out more about the nature of mercury and how it reacts in that environment. Great. Sounds like a scientist to me. <laughs> Ed, uh, talk about your hopes for not just this course, but your continued involvement in this kind of, of uh, science to community effort. Well, I hope this serves as, as a model for science education in general, and I'm looking forward to the, to the research questions and um, also to the citizens having their eyes opened. Mm -hmm. Sarah? Uh, well, every year we get more data and we can target things a bit more to really answer the questions about what's happening in the dragonfly larvae in, in these systems. So that's really interesting. But again, uh, just helping to teach more about what scientists do and how we work is very important to me. And the other piece is that you're working on is just expanding <coughs> the, the network of, of teachers mm -hmm. and therefore their students in, right. in this kind of work. Yeah. And, and uh, back to uh, Mike Sukup. Um, is this what you had in mind <laughs> uh, in terms of, of what the CERC Institute and CERC itself is, is, is set up to do? Yeah, this is exactly it, and we hope it will be open 24-7 uh, with the lights on and, and uh, providing these, um, uh, a forum and a platform for these kinds of experiences. Uh, the nation needs more science to be competitive. Kids, I think, will prosper once they start looking at the world through a scientific framework. So all of that, uh, we hope, can happen uh, at CERC, and we hope to do our best to make that happen. Great. Thanks so much. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. And that support is going to be very evident as the fund drive starts tomorrow. So please, um, when you can, um, give us a call and, and pledge your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Michael Sukup, the director of the Cirque Institute down in, in Winter Harbor, Sarah Nelson of the Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research at the University of Maine, Ed Lindsay, a science teacher from Old Town High School, and his students, James Townsend and Rachel Calloway, both students at Old Town High School. Thanks so much to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>